You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. What do you want? I'm not trying to be offensive or anything like that. Well, what do you want? What do you want? It's a simple question, isn't it? But it's not always so simple to answer. You might be thinking, uh, Bailey, what do, what do you mean, what do I want? Are you talking about right now? Well, I would like some warmer weather, please. Like, that would be absolutely excellent. Maybe, uh, maybe you're thinking, uh, what I would really like or what I really want is for you to stop asking me silly questions so we can all go get to brunch. That would be kind of delightful. Are you asking me about brunch after this? Well, if your family is anything like my family, that's even, that's, that's even more complex, right? That's a more complicated answer to come to. Are you asking me, what do I want out of life? Well, how much time do you have? Right now? You might say, well, what I want is raise. What I want is a new house. What I want is a relationship or less stress or some peace and quiet. Maybe you'd even say what I want is to be able to do what I want, right? <laughs> Bigger picture? Well, well, I, I want to set my family up well after I'm gone. I want to be the type of person that my kids still want to see and turn to when they're older. I want to be someone who is full of joy and not cranky when they enter or when I enter my twilight years. Maybe you'd say, I want to be a person who leaves, leaves a legacy of loving and trusting Jesus long after I'm gone. It's a simple question, but it's not always so simple to answer, is it? Like, have you ever thought about how sometimes the things you want There it is. I was wondering when it was going to come up. I was like, they didn't laugh. We haven't gotten to the notebook yet. We'll get there. Yeah. It's a quite, I mean, do you know that movie is 20 years old this year? Isn't that wild? (laughs) I know. Great scene though. I know all all my mid thirties women, I'm here for you. Okay. Right. We're right there. Uh, But yeah, it's a, it's a simple question. But it's not always that simple to answer. Like, have you ever thought about how sometimes the things we want can be different? And sometimes the things we want can actually sort of be exclusionary to one another. They can be at odds with one another, where getting what you want most might mean that you can't get what you want right now, and vice versa. This is a silly example, but it's also a pretty truthful one. I know that one of the things that I want most is to grow old in good health. Like, I want that. I want my body to be in as good of condition as it can be for as long as it can be because I want to be able to do things when I'm older, like play sports with my grandkids, hopefully, maybe even some great grandkids. But every day when the time to exercise rolls around, you know what I want to do? All I really want to do is watch somebody else play some sports while I go into a food coma from fried chicken and ice cream, right? That's what I want to do. Those those two desires are not moving in the same direction. And at some point, what I have to do is I have to decide between them. And this is the tension that every one of us is, is faced with, is facing, and will face throughout the entirety of our lives. And our passage from the Torah today brings this question squarely into focus. What do you want the most? 
What do you want the most? And as we'll see, it's going to provide for us something of a cautionary tale of trading what we really want most for what we think we want right now. So let's open up to Genesis chapter 25 together. Genesis chapter 25 is going to be our text this morning. And Genesis 25 brings us into the time of Abraham's grandsons, two guys that go by the name of Esau and Jacob, the two boys born to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, As you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of a reminder of where we've been up to this point. So at this point, God has come to Abraham and he has promised through his descendants to bring blessing and salvation to the world. That he was going to do something unique through Abraham's family line that would rectify humanity's perpetual descent into sin and evil. And the birth of Isaac, as we talked about last week, was sort of the first step along the way of God delivering on that promise. And Esau and Jacob are the next next ones down the line of God doing what he intends to do. And we're going to pick up today in verse 24. So let's read it together. When her days to give birth were completed, her here is Rebekah, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. They called his name Esau, which means hairy. Pretty straightforward. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means he takes by the heel or he cheats, cheater, trickster, this sort of thing. Typical younger brother energy. And we'll talk more about this next week, but this is actually an identity that kind of haunts Jacob for most of his life, but more on that to come. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Excuse me. Uh, While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so these two boys, Esau and Jacob, what we see here is they are just very different from one another. That's what we're initially being shown, that they are different from one another. Esau is big and hairy and loud. He's the real outdoorsy type, the type of dude who would rather be up a tree with a gun on any given day than anywhere else on planet Earth. A stereotypical man's man of sorts, if that helps you think of it. And as such, he's Isaac's favorite. Jacob, on the other hand, is the polar opposite. He's quiet. He likes to cook. He's the first quintessential indoor kid. The sun hurts his eyes. You know what I mean? Um, He's sort of the, he's sort of, he's not really into sports and hunting. He's more of the white claw and mimosa type fella. In fact, no shame. Uh, In fact, he enjoys, he actually prefers spending his time uh, where the women would spend their time in the tent. So he prefers, he likely prefers the company of women to the company of men. And while Isaac preferred Esau, Jacob was mama's boy. Now, None of this that I'm about to say is actually what this sermon is about, but let me say two quick things lest we get distracted, okay? First, quick parenting nugget. If you want to royally screw up your children, you should do what Isaac and Rebecca do here, okay? Let me just give you that one for free. If you want to mess everything up in your family, follow their lead and play favorites. It's going to work out great for this family, all right? It's going to be fantastic. But secondly, I don't want you to get tripped up on how these boys are being described here. Their descriptions don't really have anything to do with biblical masculinity. The Bible is not telling us what is masculine and what is not masculine here. There are certainly some cultural stereotypes that are being typified, but biblical masculinity 
isn't associated with being more like Esau and less like Jacob or vice versa. That's not what's happening here. Rather, we're getting these descriptions of these boys. The Torah is describing their differences here because it is a microcosm for their relationship. It is a microcosm for their relationship. They are different from one another. From the jump, they are polar opposite at odds in personality and temperament and even relationally with one another. Like if you were to glance back up at verse 23, in fact, God said this would basically form the basis of their relationship. Prior to their birth, Rebecca felt like there was a battle going on in her belly and she comes to God and she says, God, what is going on? And God told her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Point being, from the beginning, God indicated that a sibling rivalry of sorts was happening between them, one that would define their relationship and ultimately was going to result in something that would have been completely and totally backwards for the culture at this time. The older of the two would become subservient to the younger. Now, without getting too far into it, this is not how things worked in the ancient world, and you need to know that. This is not at all how things worked for ancient families. In the ancient Near East, uh, there, it was, there was this cultural practice that the firstborn was born with something called the birthright, okay? The birthright. And I'll keep it brief, but it's important for us to understand what's going on. The birthright was basically a system or a means for, by which to provide stability, security, and direction for a family's future after the death of the parents. And I know that's a bit of a foreign idea for us, but it essentially meant three things. First, it meant that the firstborn would become the de facto leader of the family. The firstborn was given this position of responsibility and power to carry the family forward after the father passed away. They became the person to set direction for where the family would go and what they would do. They were given the authority to call the shots and to settle disputes, which, depending on your personality, might sound like a great gig or an absolutely terrible one. But with that responsibility, it also meant that the firstborn got a double portion of the father's wealth compared to the other siblings, which now I bet all of us firstborns here in the room are like, oh yeah, let's go back to that. That sounds absolutely delightful. I mean, it was a, it was a significant wealth advantage compared to your siblings. And thirdly, I meant blessing. It meant blessing, which might be the most foreign of the three parts to us, but blessing was, the blessing was simply this formalized way of passing down an empowered future. It included words of spiritually accurate discernment, promises from the Lord, and life direction. And as such, it provided a profound sense of self and belonging and purpose. And the birthright was a tremendous honor and privilege to have. And that is especially true for those in Abraham's line because the inheritance received by this family was also God's inheritance. The promises of all he was going to do for them and through the world, through their line, flowed through this birthright. And simply the thing to know is that as the firstborn, all of this would have rightly belonged to Esau. Esau would have been the one to become the family's leader. Esau would have been the one to get the lion's share of the family's wealth. Esau would have received the words of blessing. Esau would have been the one to carry the promises of God forward such that when God is introduced in the scriptures, it would have been, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Esau. 
But if you're familiar with your Bible, you know, and as God tells Rebekah in verse 23, that is not going to be the case for these two sons because there's a problem. There's a problem. A problem I heard a preacher years ago identify that I have never forgotten. The problem is that Esau has an appetite. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. So Jacob is putting all that younger brother energy on display. And this is, this is complete conjecture. But when I read this, it just makes me feel a bit like how my kids try to make deals with one another. Like, one of them will come into the living room where the other one is at and say, hey, give me the remote. I want to watch a show. And the other one, seeing the opportunity to be difficult, right, will go like, I'll give it to you for a million bucks, you know? Uh, and I mean, it's just an absolutely ridiculous request that they never expect the other kid to actually agree to. Well, let's look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, of course, he's not actually dying. He just walked in here of his own accord. This is an exaggeration. Like Jacob might've been the one hanging out with the women, but Esau is the one being the real drama queen here, okay? Like it's absolutely outlandish. And so Jacob seizes the moment. He seizes the moment. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. He's jumping all over this opportunity. Tell me what you're gonna, tell me you'll do it. Promise it to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he, Esau, ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. And from here, all that God said would happen, happens. Jacob gets what he didn't deserve. God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Esau. It's Jacob's line that would wind up inheriting the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that would become the centerpiece of God's actions and dealings with humanity. And Esau's people, later known as the nation of Edom, would be confined to the rocky, infertile, and dry land that butted up against the Arabian desert. It's Jacob's line that gets the promise of God to be with them to be for them, to care for them. It's Jacob's line that gets the covenant promises of God. And it's Jacob's line that gets the promise that God's grand world salvation project would now flow through him. Jacob, who didn't deserve it, who didn't rightly, whose it wasn't rightly for, gets it. And Esau traded it all for a bowl of stew. And the reader's reaction to this story is meant to be, why in the world would he do that? Like, what was he thinking? Like, we're, we're meant to be dumbfounded by it because it's a dumbfounding move. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then in, in no realm is this type of trade actually worth it. But here's the thing. This is a true story of what happened that simultaneously tells us about what happened. The writer of Hebrews warns us, do not be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Point being, what happened with Esau, the scriptures are telling us, actually has the potential to happen with us as well. You see, what's happening here is that Esau is someone who is 
controlled, for lack of a better way of saying it, by his appetite, his desire, what he wants right now, which in this case is literally an appetite for food. But the truth is, is that there are lots of different appetites out there for us. There's food and sex, which we know, but there's so much more. Like we can have an appetite for all sorts of things. We can have an appetite for things like progress or, or getting to the next stage of life. We can have the appetite to win or to be successful, whether that's in our careers or our family or hobby or whatever it may be. We can have the appetite for love, the desire to be wanted and accepted and appreciated, cared for, the desire to belong. We can have an appetite for recognition, to, to be noticed and seen. We can have an appetite to be envied. This is often the dynamic in play with much of our social media to present life in such a way that others like it and want it, want it. Even though it's not that life is that much better, we're just better at taking pictures. The appetite for stuff, for more stuff or new stuff or better stuff or shinier stuff. Like for instance, how many of us actually use Zillow to shop for a home as opposed to just dream scrolling about how much better life could be, right? Is that a little too close to home? Now, none of these appetites are necessarily inherently bad, right? Like, in fact, many of them are God-given and good. Like, an appetite for progress and accomplishment, for instance, drives us to fulfill God's desire for us, to cultivate and keep the earth. Appetites for food and sex keep us alive and our species in existence. The trouble comes, however, when our appetites are distorted by sin. When, when our sin takes these desires and, and blows them up out of proportion and twists them such that we don't want what we should want, or we don't want what we should the right amount, or in the right place, or in the right order. When our appetites become outsized and uncontrolled, this is what's happening with Esau. He is controlled by his hunger. It's all he can think about. He zeroes in on his desire for food. And you see it right here in the text. He concludes, I can't live without it. I'll, I'll die if I don't get some stew. And of course, we would all die without food at some point. But for Esau, it's right now. If I don't have it right now, I can't go on. I have to have it immediately, no matter what it costs me. Everything else every other consideration, every other thought, every other desire, it just fades into the background because of this one thing that he wants. And it costs him everything. And Esau becomes one of the ghostliest ghosts in the entire Old Testament. And there's a lot to say about what takes place here, but I want to draw our attention to two things that I think we would do really, really well to see. And the first is this is that we ought to look at the story of Esau and see the true power of an appetite. The true power of an appetite. So something fascinating happens in verse 30 of this text. This verse gets cleaned up a bit by translators, but it's really, really interesting in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, this verse is really rough and rudimentary compared to the rest of the text. In English, Esau's words are more directly something like, me tired, give me that red red. Literally. I mean, that's what the Hebrew really kind of more directly tr uh, translates to. And the way it's written, it, it quite literally makes Esau out to seem kind of like a beast. It seems to reveal how debased his belly has made him. 
for all my Tolkien people out there, like it's really reminiscent of Gollum from Lord of the Rings, okay? Gollum is this creature, right, who has become consumed by this desire for the ring. His appetite for the ring has just overtaken everything about him. Nothing else matters to him. It's the only thing that's precious to him. And as such, everything else about him, his physical appearance, his personality, his identity, his history, it all faded away and decayed turning him into this unrecognizable creature that's just fixated on the precious. This is what is happening to Esau. And such is the power of unrestrained appetites. Point being, uncontrolled, your appetites have the potential to ruin you. It's what we're meant to see here, that uncontrolled appetites have the potential to ruin you. They have the power to rule your life to overcome your prayers, to overcome your worship, to overcome your devotion to Jesus. They have the potential to determine the direction and the quality of your life going forward into the future. And ultimately, they have the potential to cost you what you really want the most. That same preacher that I mentioned earlier gave an insight on Esau's behavior here that has just always stuck with me. He said, what we learn from Esau is that you will either rule your appetites or your appetites will rule you. To say it a little bit differently, Esau doesn't merely have an appetite. Esau's appetite has him. And the point is, is that this very same danger exists for each and every one of us. The Bible actually has a word for this. It's lust. And lust is not just about sexuality. Lust is simply an uncontrolled appetite for anything. And let me tell you, I have seen few things shipwreck more lives than this. And some of you know what I'm talking about really, really well. For some of you growing up, you had a parent whose appetite for alcohol or some substance absolutely controlled them. And they traded you and your family for a buzz or a pill. And you know what type of damage it caused. Some of you had a parent or a spouse whose appetite for sex absolutely controlled them, and it blew your family apart. Some of you are a financial mess right now because you have traded godly stewardship of your money for a lust for things and experiences and keeping up with the Joneses or ease or comfort. Some of you have such an appetite for success that you've essentially traded your family for it. Where you're there, but you're not actually there. You know what I mean? And if you don't, rest assured your family does. For some of us, the power of that appetite for love has caused you to go places and do things and be with people that you never thought you would go. For some of you, that, that little appetite, whatever for whatever it may have been, just a little bit of pleasure or comfort or escape you, that you thought was just this harmless little guilty pleasure that you indulged in from time to time has now become the throes of full-blown addiction. And I could go on and on, but I don't think I need to. And here's the thing. Do you think that Esau woke up that morning and said, yep, 
Today is the day I'm going to throw it all away. Today is the day that I'm going to trade my future for my belly. Of course not. Of course not. He was just living his normal life. He was doing what he normally did out in the field hunting. He was just out hunting, and this uncontrollable hunger, it just sneaks up on him. And he felt like it was just too strong for me to deny. And y'all, that should stop us in our tracks. Because we read this story and we think, who in their right mind would trade their birthright for a bowl of stew? Who would do that? Who would trade that future? Who would trade that future wealth, that future blessing? Who would trade that future prosperity and power? Who would trade the future promises of God for something so temporary and silly and small? Who would do that? The answer is you would. I would. Some of your parents did. And listen, y'all, what I am begging you to see here is that sin always hides the price tag. It always hides the price tag. You can think, oh, this this appetite, it really isn't that big of a deal. It's It's just a little guilty pleasure. It's just a small trade. It's not really gonna impact the long term. It's not gonna affect what I want most in my life. Friends, that is not how sin works. Sin is like throwing a stone into a pool of water. The ripple effects just continue to proceed from it on and on and on. And the decisions that you make today are going to impact your tomorrow. And that is not to say that they are beyond redemption. So please don't mishear me on that. That That's not to say they are beyond redemption. It is to say that they are never benign. They're never benign. And that question is always going to be in front of you, maybe even on a daily basis of what do I want the most? What do I really want the most? Am I going to trade the ultimate for the immediate? What's coming for what's in front of me now? Is that a trade I'm going to make today, this week, this month, this year? It's a decision in front of all of us. But it's a decision that requires the other thing that I think we're going to need to see here. The other thing that we need to see from this text is is not just the power of the appetite, but the true worth of the promise. The true worth of the promise. Verse 34 to me is the most haunting thing about this narrative. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. That word despised means he had contempt for it. He hated it. To say it more succinctly, he thought his birthright was junk. What makes Esau's rejection of the blessing so tragic is is that he, he doesn't think it's valuable. He doesn't think there's any worth in it. He looks at the promises that God gave to his family. He looks at what he stood to ultimately receive in light of what he wanted immediately and says, oh, that's worthless. That's not worth comparing to a bowl of stew. And we all look at that and know that nothing could have been further from the truth. And what I want you to know is that is true of what God has for you too. 
I know in the moment, sin can look like it's oh so pleasing and, and desiring, but the truth is, is that what God has for us is infinitely better. So um, you've probably heard me talk about this if we've been able to kind of catch each other in the hallway here and there. Uh, I went on my first cruise recently. And I'm gonna let y'all know. It changed my life, okay? Like, I'm a cruise person now. Like, I just, plain and simple. I'm a cruise person now. I can't stop evangelizing for it, okay? And, that, and let's be clear. That is what I'm doing. Like, the cruise, you all need to go on it, okay? It was Disney. It was wonderful. Loved it. 10 of 10 would do again. Anyway, uh, it changed my life. Uh, and let me tell you something about what I did on that cruise. I ate well, all right? Like, I ate so good. We had food that I never even knew existed, okay? Like, I mean, the things that humans can do, y'all, it's unbelievable. The things humans can do with stuff like ahi tuna, I mean, never seen anything like it before in your life. I don't even know how to describe it to you. But what I do know is that now, if you put that side-by-side with gas station sushi, it's not even close. Like, it's not even a choice. And some of you are like, gas station sushi should never be a choice. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Listen, that's not the point, okay? The point is, is that if gas station sushi is all I think exists, then when I have that hunger for sushi, it's what I'm going to pick. Because I don't know that there is something better actually out there. I don't know any better. I think the C.S. Lewis quote that, we've, that I've shared with you before just absolutely nails this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. His point is that what God has for you, it's better. No matter how good you think your sin is going to be, no matter how good you think that immediate appetite or how much you need that immediate appetite may be, what what we're saying, what's being said here is that what God has for you, it is just so, so much better. And the scriptures are full of this. For example, in Ephesians, Paul prays that we would see and know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints that the better is coming, that we would know that God is for our good and intends to give us the greatest good, that he wants to give us the blessing. He wants our lives to be blessed by him. I try to say this to you often, but, but in his commands, God is never trying to take anything good from you. Do you know that? He is never trying to take anything good from you. And what he commands, he is only trying to give the best to you. He has a positive vision of flourishing for your life, for you and those around you, a fruitful and a blessed life that passes down a legacy of faith and love. But bigger than that, he has determined through Jesus, as it says in Romans, to give us all things. That this inheritance that Paul speaks about is everything. Everything that we would ever actually want or need, he intends to give us that in Christ, all that is God's will be yours. Believer, do you know that? That everything that is God's, he intends to give to you. That means every crook and cranny of your soul that hungers, that feels empty or hungry, that whatever is underneath our earthly appetites that is true and good will one day fully and finally be fulfilled. He is not planning on letting that good hunger go unsatisfied for you. We will have that love. You will have that victory. You will have that freedom, that comfort, that peace. He wants to give that to you. 
in a way that is more full and satisfying than anything on this earth could possibly give to you. Because guess what? Like the big truth of it all is like at the end of the day, our inheritance, it's him. We get him, the God of the universe. You get God for forever. The God in whose presence Psalm 16 declares is the fullness of joy and at whose right hand exist pleasures forevermore. You get him. You get to know him, to be with him, both in the now and in eternity. This is what Jesus came to do, y'all. Like, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus bled and died to forgive you of sin. He did do that. But Jesus bled and died to get you to God, to get you to the thing that your soul was made for, to get you to the thing that you are actually hungry for, whether you even know it or not. And you get him. Not only is his grace and forgiveness yours, and that would be enough, but through Christ, you get all the other stuff thrown in. You get all of his love. You get his comfort. You get his power, his approval, his presence. You get the kingdom, the place where everything that sin has made wrong is finally made right, where all the brokenness is healed, where everything is restored, where the tears are dried up, and even death itself is swallowed up forever. You get the peace, the pleasure, the joy, the righteousness, the perfection, the wholeness, and the real satisfaction that you were made for. All of that, he intends to be yours. And it is, it is so crucial that you know that this is what God is offering you, that this is his promise to you. So crucial that we know it and know it well. In fact, if you were at our night of prayer and worship on Friday, you know that this was a theme. It was a, it was a really, truly a powerful, powerful night. But so much of our prayers on Friday were, God, help us to see and know how worthy and wonderful you are. Give us a hunger for you, Jesus. Help us to see the surpassing worth of knowing you and being with you because, God, there's nothing else that could satisfy like you. And the other reason I say this is because it's like the old Puritan Thomas Chalmers said that the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Or to put it into the terms of our passage today, what you need to combat the power of an uncontrolled appetite is the expulsive power of a greater one. What you need to overcome the power of the appetite in your life is the expulsive power of a greater one. Because in those moments when we are coming back from the proverbial hunt, it can be hard, right? It doesn't always feel like the promise is worth it. Sometimes it feels like pain to give up what I want now for the promise of something coming later. Sometimes we truly feel like Esau did, exhausted, tired, Tired of fighting the appetite. Tired of living in the tension of such a decision. And if that's you, I would just want to remind you of Paul's words in Romans 8, 18, where he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, to us. His point is the better is coming. And there is not one single trade you make of what you want now for what you want most that you will regret in eternity. There's not one trade you are going to regret. You are not going to regret sacrificing career advancement and more money in your bank account to invest yourself and your faith in your children or your community 
or your church. You will not regret saying no to sinful sexual desire, to a relationship or a possible future that you know is not God's vision for you in order that you may gain Christ. You will not regret it. You will not regret faithfulness to your spouse, the choice to love them and bear with them, even on their worst days. You won't regret it. You're not going to regret those mornings that you woke up when you didn't want to wake up to spend time with God. You're not going to regret it. You're not going to regret the sacrifices that you made to live generously, to support God's work in, his, in the world and in his people. Friends, you are not going to regret it. He promises us that what he has for us is better. And there is not one trade you make for the better that you're going to regret in eternity. With that being said, we've got to acknowledge the obvious, I think, in the room, right? Because the reality is, we are all like Esau. In fact, we all are Esau. Every single one of us knows what it's like to trade what we want most for what we want right now. We know what it is to have traded God's goodness for something else. We've all done it. Certainly in different ways and different degrees, but, but this is a test that each of us knows what it's like to fail. And the good news for us is that our salvation is found in the fact that Jesus did not fail this test on our behalf. It's fascinating to me that the writer of the book of Hebrews puts the moments of Jesus' crucifixion exactly in these terms. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you remember that night of crucifixion? Remember the night of, of the crucifixion when Jesus was in the garden. He actually tells us what he wanted most and what he wants right now. He says, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to be here right now. I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. In those moments of the crucifixion, what did Jesus want right then? For it not to be happening to not be experiencing the pain and the beating and the shame and the embarrassment, the agony and the injustice. But then he says what he wants most. He says, nevertheless, your will be done. What I want most will determine what I do right now. And what I want most is for your will to be done, for your promises to be fulfilled. What I want most is the joy of following through of the plan of your redemption. What he wanted most was the joy of following through on the plan that all that God had promised to Esau's descendants, that all that God had promised, excuse me, to Abraham's descendants, that all that God had promised to Esau's grandfather Abraham would flow out to me and to you. That's what he wanted the most. Jesus succeeded where Esau failed so that all of us who have been like Esau if we would turn from sin and place faith in him, would wind up getting exactly what was given to Jacob. And that's what gives us the power through our union with him to do the same, to be ancestors instead of ghosts, those who leave a legacy of Jesus as what, instead of one of pain and destruction. And the only question you have to answer is what do you want? What do you want? Let's pray.